0: Welcome to the Eye on the Cure podcast, the podcast about winning the fight against retinal disease from the Foundation Fighting Blindness. Welcome, everyone, to the Eye on the Cure podcast. I am your host, Ben Shaberman, with the Foundation Fighting Blindness, and I'm very pleased today to have as my guest, John Flannery, PhD at UC Berkeley where he's a professor of neurobiology in the Department of Molecular and Cell Biology, and he's also associate director at the Helen Wills Neuroscience Institute. And he's also a scientific co-founder at Videre, which is a gene therapy company that's in the foundation's RD Fund portfolio. And the RD Fund, for those of you that don't know, is our venture philanthropy fund for helping move companies into clinical trials. And I'd be remiss if I didn't add that John has been a member of the foundation's scientific advisory board for many years, for decades, and he's received funding from the foundation over the years for a lot of different great research efforts, including gene therapy, some excellent work in gene therapy, and optogenetics, which is going to be the focus of our discussion today. And John, welcome to The Eye and the Cure. It's great to have you. Thanks, Ben. So I've known you for many years and I've heard you talk, I've read your papers, but I don't know how you got started in this field or just in science in general. Can you go back to when, I don't know, perhaps you were a little guy at five years old and you were playing with test tubes can you tell us when you realized that you had a penchant for science and decided to get into research and and then what got you into uh, focusing on the retina?
1: Yeah, I think this is a Woody Allen joke, right? I started out as a child. Um, <laughs> my father, I come from a very blue collar family. Uh, my father always thought who was an engineer when he started his career, always thought that, you know, we should be able to fix everything in the house. So I would go with him to fix the car, the washing machine, the dishwasher, everything. So um, I'm used to taking things apart and hopefully putting them back together again. So um, I still actually, that's the only thing that students let me do in the lab anymore. Um, So yeah, I mean, I've always had an interest in uh, discovering how things work by disassembling them. And so um, when I was an undergrad, I volunteered to work in Stephen Fisher's lab, who was a retina researcher when he came to UC Santa Barbara, where I was an undergrad. Um, so I volunteered because I thought it would be nice to do stuff with my hands um, and more than listen to lectures. So I've been working on retina since I was an uh, undergrad. Actually, I don't think I actually I haven't ever worked on anything other than retina.
0: That, that's really interesting. So while you've been in research for all these years, you've had a lab, your own lab, for many years. And can you give us just sort of a sense of what happens in a lab and what it's like to run a lab?
1: Yeah. I mean, different faculty members have different styles. One of the faculty members upstairs who has a great sense of humor says um, what he does is he raises money. Um, buys Ferraris and throws the car keys out the office window. At Berkeley, um, the student, the graduate students and the postdoctoral fellows are generally incredibly excellent at what they do. Yeah, to some extent, my job is to give them the resources for them to be creative and excel. They need good equipment, supplies, animal models. So a lot of what professors do is try to keep the grad students focused. And I don't think I ever have to tell them to work harder. And to give them the resources to do excellent work and creative work, so.
0: That's great. And I presume you're a fun mentor, but a a very inspiring and uh, educational person. I presume you do a lot of mentoring in your role.
1: Well, I don't like to micromanage. My office is actually right in the lab. So my style is sort of, I try to keep the door to my office open and not look too intimidating. So some of the students... Like to talk to me when things are working. Other ones only want to talk to me when it's not working. Some of them, you know, they all have their own style. So I just like to—I try to not look intimidating.
0: <laughs> okay. Well, I again, I, I'm sure you're a great mentor. So let's talk about optogenetics. And in your own words, of course, I'm asking you a question, so you should be in your own words. How would you describe optogenetics and what are the opportunities it provides for patients? And, but what are the challenges in developing and implementing an optogenetic therapy?
1: Yeah, the term comes from mixing two terms together. It's optical, so it's triggered by light. And the thing that's triggered by light is a protein, but it's delivered to the tissue, in our case, the retina, by a gene, by putting the gene in, not the protein. So that's where optogenetics come from. The first time I heard about it, a colleague of ours at Stanford who is a neurologist that works on narcolepsy. Patients that have narcolepsy have a small center deep in their brain that has a defect that causes them to fall asleep randomly. And previous to his work, the therapy was to put an electrode wire deep to that center in their brain and stimulate it electrically. Uh, The trouble with that is that the wire gets covered with cells called glia over time and it insulates the wire so you have to keep turning up the electric current to make it work and eventually it stops working so their idea was to make the cells in that region of the brain in the narcoleptic patient light sensitive and use a fiber optic light to turn on and off the cells and put an optogenetic sensor switch in those cells that would respond to light so what i thought is that you know the retina is the natural place to do this because it's not, you don't have to drill a pit hole in a person's head to get the fiber optic in there. There's all naturally cornea in the lens, focus all the light on the retina. Another part of the literature that we had seen for a long time is that almost all the genes that people that identify genes from patients have discovered, which they discover without any particular bias, almost every single one of those genes is causes a defect in rod photoreceptor cells. Like 95% of the retinal degeneration genes kill rods, a few of them kill cones, but there's many other kinds of neurons in the retina, ones that aren't light sensitive, that seem to survive for decades in the patient, but they don't allow the patient to see. So if you lose the photoreceptor cells, the other cells can survive, but they're not responding to light. So the way those two marry together is that if you can take the second or the third neurons in the signaling chain, and put in a new gene that makes them light-sensitive, perhaps that would restore vision. So that's where the optogenetics concept came from. Several labs, including ours, had the same idea. It's a natural fit for optogenetics. So it's also a natural fit for, many people have heard of the SPARC LCA2 RPE65 gene therapy that uses a virus to transfer a naturally occurring normal copy of the defective gene in LCA2 to the retinal cell where it's missing. So in optogenetics, you use the same sort of delivery mechanism, AAV vector. But in the case of this, you don't put a replacement gene for a defective gene. You put in a light sensing gene into a cell that wasn't normally light sensitive. So it's, it's gene therapy, but it's not gene therapy to replace something. It's to put in a new thing. And in that way, in some ways, it has an advantage because the number of patients could be much bigger because you don't have to put back the exact gene that the patient has a defect in because there's at least 300 different defects that are known for RP. In fact, you don't even have to know what the patient's defect is because you're not replacing it.
0: Yeah, that's, I think, one of the most exciting things for people with retinal diseases is it is gene agnostic and it has the opportunity to help people regardless of the disease. And, it has the potential to restore vision to people who have no vision left, essentially. And so I know a lot of the trials now are focused on helping people who have lost most or all of their vision with RP, but do you think it'll work for conditions like AMD and Stargardt disease, which are more of a, centrally, a central vision loss as opposed to losing outer retinal cells?
1: Yeah, that's still an open question. Clinical imaging has gotten to be so sophisticated in the last couple of years, maybe decade, ophthalmologists get a very good idea of what cells are remaining in the patient's retina and where they are. So in areas where in star guards or in macular degeneration where the patient has a vision loss, we call a scotoma, they could have a big island in the center of their visual field. It can be randomly shaped. Some AMD patients can't see in the very center, but they can see in the edges Some people have different areas of loss between the right and the left eye. If you do careful imaging, you'll be able to ascertain whether or not they have surviving second and third order neurons in those areas where their photoreceptors are lost. So if they still have ganglion cells in the regions where they can't see, and those are intact and they're still connected to the patient's brain, optogenetics has the potential to fill in those areas because the cells that are targeted by the optogenetic gene therapy is the ganglion cells. So in many patients, it looks like by imaging that they still have the inner retina in the areas of the vision loss. That will still remain to be seen because no animal models that we work on to test the therapy have that kind of vision loss. All the mouse models lose vision uniformly across the whole eye. Most of the large animal dog And pig models have that. And there's very few primate models of RP. So it's still an open question that'll be resolved only when people start testing these therapies in patients of whether or not it can fill in a scotoma. Right.
0: So there are obviously some excellent opportunities for optogenetics, again, in restoring vision to people who have lost really all their vision. And again, it's gene agnostic. But what are some of the challenges in implementing or really designing an optogenetic therapy?
1: The challenges are basically the same as all the other gene therapies that are clinically being tested in patients for other photoreceptor diseases. There's ones for ushers and Stargardt's, uh, LCA2, et cetera. So you wanna deliver the gene efficiently. So optimizing how well the virus carrier works, getting it to as many cells as possible, you'd like to use as low a dose as possible because you don't want to trigger the immune system by the optogenetic protein or the virus. So efficiency is important. So you could inject less, as minimal as possible. There's some questions in optogenetics of what are the best cells to use to put the optogenetic protein into. So most of the companies, including ours, are currently uh, looking at ganglion cells because they're the the last part of the chain of signaling in the retina. So in the fovea, for example, there's foveal photoreceptor cones, and there's a bipolar cell, which is a relay cell, and there's ganglion cells, and it goes to your optic nerve. In other parts of the retina, there's cells that do some computation and image processing called amacrine cells and horizontal cells that process some of the image signaling before it goes to the retina. So some of the students in the lab are doing optogenetics where they put the sensor in bipolar cells, which are one step up in the chain from ganglion cells. Um, One of the other students has put it in amacrine cells and amacrine cells are very broad. They run horizontally through the retina and they input many, many ganglion cells, can be a hundred. So there may be advantages. You may get a better percept for the patient by not putting it in the third cell of the chain by putting it up a little bit in the signaling and maybe you can retain some of the intrinsic properties of, that the retina does. So it may work better that way. So none of the clinical trials are currently using those other cell types, but we're testing them in mice right now.
0: Right, and I, I think that brings up an, an important point. We're always excited about what's in a clinical trial, but behind those clinical trials, a little further back in the pipeline are often better approaches that are moving toward the clinic. So I, I appreciate that you and other lab researchers are always coming up with better approaches to these, these different treatment modalities. So I want to move into the work that you and your colleagues have done for Videre. So the original Videri, as we say, is Videri 1, <laughs> that particular approach was uh, acquired by Novartis. Actually, the company, if I understand correctly, was acquired by Novartis. And then there's a second incarnation, which is being termed Videri 2. Can you talk about what the two different approaches, the Vidari 1 and Vidari 2 approaches, do and what some of the advantages of each
1: are? Uh, Certainly. The Vidari initial program was to take the um, photosensitive protein from middle wavelength, what are called green cone photoreceptors, and put that into the viral AAV vector and put the cone green pigment in ganglion cells. So it's what we call a one-component therapy. You put in the cone-opsin and the light-sensitive molecule that the cone-opsin normally used in the cone photoreceptors, it still uses. So it's still available. It's delivered the normal way. But now the cone-opsin is in ganglion cells. And in the case of the patients loses their rod and cone photoreceptors, it will be functioning in this other neuron down in the signaling pathway. So the initial acquisition of Videri by Novartis was to buy that intellectual property to do that program. And in other parts of the lab, we had identified um, by screening optimized viral vectors to deliver the the cone-opsin. So they licensed two or three uh, AAV vectors and the cone-opsin technology. But as I said earlier, we have other approaches in the lab at the time, and Novartis could have bought those as well, but they didn't. So Vedaria iteration now is looking at the other, other approaches and other cell types and with other types of uh, sensors for optogenetics. You know, Novartis was pretty happy with keeping the name Novartis. They have all kinds of tote bags and hats and pens, so they didn't need the, our names. We're still Vedaria. They didn't acquire the name.
0: Right. And Videri is using, uh, again, or now Novartis, but also the existing Videri is using this, the conopsins that you mentioned. And conopsins have some advantages over the light-sensitive proteins that are being used by some other companies. Can you talk about the advantages of using cone opsin versus some of these other proteins that other companies are using?
1: Yeah, initially we tried rod opsin with the same AAV delivery system to ganglion cells, and rod photoreceptors using rod opsin are incredibly fast at seeing changes in the light, and they're really really sensitive. But when you move the rod opsin to another cell. In this case a ganglion cell, it turns out that there's a transduction machinery in that cell that it plugs into. That machinery in ganglion cells is much slower than the machinery it was using in photoreceptors. So we found that the rod opsin, even though the animals could sense light very sensitively, they didn't need any goggles or anything, they could only do tasks, um, the mice could only do tasks that didn't require the vision to be quick. So they could move if you had a box with a light and a dark side they could move to the they prefer to be in the dim light they feel safer so they could move to the dim part of the chamber but if you did a task that required them to see quickly a vision to refresh like if you put an ipad at either end of the cage with stripes on it that moved a little bit they couldn't do that but we found with the cone option it's also really really fast in cones when you put the cone opsin in ganglion cells, it's much much faster than the rhodopsin for biophysical reasons, and it's just as sensitive. So we felt that that was a, a good system for providing vision. And in animals, in mice, even though they don't have as vision that's as good as people, in some cases the mice can perform vision tasks as well with cone opsin as wild type mice, normally sighted mice. But in measuring the response, the cone opsin may not be as fast as you ideally would like for people moving around in the world where your eyes are moving, your head's moving, the object's moving, et cetera. So the current Videre programs are using photoswitch molecules that are not the naturally occurring ones. And the thought is that they will respond more quickly than the opsin. Both those programs, the opsin and the new Videre programs uh, don't require any light-intensifying goggles. So, for example, the Gensite molecule is a, called Crimson R. It's incredibly fast. There's no issue that it's going to not be fast enough for moving objects or moving around. But it's not very light-sensitive. So that's what the goggles provide, is they in, make the light brighter. So
0: the the advantage, if I understand, of the Vidari approach is is that people will be able to see more in natural light without the need for these light-intensifying glasses, and also that they should be able to perceive movement pretty accurately without blurring. You know, that's something I don't think we think about with vision is that healthy eyes that don't have retinal issues can see objects moving very well, our eyes can respond quickly to the changing environment in front of us. I don't think we appreciate how well our our retinas and, and the rest of our visual system enable us to do that. So that's something that you have to account for in these optogenetic therapies. And it sounds like Videri, the two approaches, do that pretty well
1: so that you can see movement without things being blurry. And one of the important things for the students and myself in the lab is to keep trying to understand how the retina works when it's healthy. And there's still many, many things to understand that aren't understood about how the retina works. But one thing that's clear is that if you stop the retina from moving, you'd have to anesthetize the person or the animal. Actually, the image goes away. So the way the retina is normally wired, it requires the image to be moving across the retina all the time. If you stop the eye from moving, the image actually disappears. So movement is intrinsic to the vision process.
0: Interesting. I, I was not aware of that. That is uh, very fascinating. So for my last question, with some of these more advanced optogenetic approaches, like what Vidaria is working on right now, what do you think people will be able to see if these
1: therapies uh, work as, as planned? That's a great question. It's really difficult to answer. So far, all of our programs have been testing in animals, and you can only get the animal vision back to where it was wild type, and mouse vision is nowhere near close to what human vision is. Studies we've done in dog and pig models that has the same issue. With the dog models, you can design behavioral tests that the dogs will run a Y maze or things like that. Trying to get the pig models to do any behavior is like a comedy show. They just won't do it. And so I think from the patients will, will be the first people to really tell you what they can see. We can make some calculations of what they can see. I think also patients' brains are very plastic, as we say. And so I think the patient's vision will get better the longer they use the device, the optogenic sensor and, or the headset, uh, goggles, et cetera. In the LCA2 trials, the patients get better with time. And from what we know about how the gene therapy works, the gene therapy doesn't really change much. After about a couple of weeks, it stabilizes. But the patient's vision changes, and that's their brain getting used to the new input. So um, I think in the few patients from GenSight that have been reported so far, it's very encouraging. But those patients have only used the goggles for a couple of weeks. They seem to be seeing remarkably well. So I think they'll just get better. Uh, hopefully for the other programs from the other groups, including ours, that the patients will get some vision restoration in a couple of weeks. They should get a big gain in function. And then I think their understanding of what they're seeing will get better. In the electronic prosthetics, that was definitely the case. The patients learned how to use a second sight device. With time, they got better and better.
0: Right. And I, I'm sure our listeners, many of whom are patients, would agree that even A modest amount of vision improvement for for somebody that has no vision or very little vision would be huge. So this approach, the work you're doing is really- At a recent
1: meeting, one of the patients said, if you could just get me back to where I was five years ago, which tells you something about what people's expectations are. I don't think there's much opportunity for optogenetics to ever get back to 2020 vision because just the way the the photoreceptor is so amazingly good at that. Will it provide vision for people to move around the room? I think so. Uh, It's an open question if it'll ever be driving or reading your phone or something. I think it just remains to be found from the patient's reports.
0: Right. Well, John, this has been, no pun intended, very enlightening. I appreciate you reflecting on... The work you've done and what's what's coming down the pike we're really excited to see the Vidari approaches move toward clinical trials it provides a lot of um hope for again people that have very little vision left or no vision left so again thank you for taking time out of your day to to talk about this great work and we wish you continued success you and your lab as you move forward so Again, thanks for joining us.
1: Happy to talk to you. Thanks very much.
0: Sure. And listeners, thank you as always for joining Eye on the Cure. And we look forward to having you back for our next episode. Stay well. This has been Eye on the Cure. To help us win the fight, please donate at foundationfightingblindness.org.